Well, good morning again, everyone, and happy 4th of July. It's, uh, it's good to see you all here, even though you had many other things that you probably could have been doing this morning. But I hope that your weeks went well. I mean, there's nothing like coming to, to church or this time in our calendar year to celebrate freedom, you know, freedom in our country. Um, and then you compare that to the freedom that we come each and every week to celebrate that we have in Jesus. You know, you compare the victory of the Revolutionary War to the, the victory that Christ has over the, the grave and over death. You know, when you think about this day in our calendar year, freedom is a theme that is commonly talked about. It's almost expected that we talk about this and we make these types of connections. People are out and about today watching parades, having cookouts, setting off fireworks, having celebrations, walking around with this attitude of America. You know, I think Christians should be emulating that type of excitement and celebration, walking around with the attitudes of Jesus. He is one that is worthy of celebrating. You know, we look at celebrations that happen today, and it's good because it refreshes our purpose a little bit, the purpose that we have as Americans, the purpose of how we live out as citizens in this nation. We do the same thing each week that we come here to celebrate Jesus and all that he has done, looking at that purpose that he has given us. Maybe we just need a few more fireworks or sparklers in here. Tongue-in-cheek, of course. But we do come each and every week to celebrate him who is worthy of celebration. And we're coming to the point in our sermon series through Luke that we're going to be talking about the resurrection today, the purpose of our faith, and the one who has saved us from our sins. So if you have your Bibles, you can join me in Luke 23 today. And we'll read the rest of 23 and begin 24. Luke 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had, yet, or had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said, men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. 
And that was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Father, as we go to your word this morning, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds, that you would help us to understand your truths and just the beauty of your plan and purposes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so if you recall, last week we left off in this narrative with Jesus still hanging on the cross, crying out to the Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And we saw all of these reactions of the crowd through the crucifixion to the death of Jesus. And it kind of ended with the followers off in the distance watching all that was going on, um, watching the death of Jesus. And now we, we have this new person coming into the narrative here, Joseph of Arimathea. He is described as a good and righteous man, a person who is looking for the kingdom of God. He is on the council. He has disapproved everything that the council has gone through so far um, or how things have gone down with Jesus. He's a man of integrity. He stood for what is right even though he was in the minority of this situation. But he still had the courage to stand up and do something that was morally correct. Robert Kennedy has a quote. He says, Few men are willing to brave the disapproval of their fellows, the censure of their colleagues, the wrath of their society. Moral courage is a rarer commodity than bravery in battle or great intelligence. Yet it is the one essential, vital quality for those who seek to change the world, which yields most painfully to change. I believe that in this generation, those with the courage to enter the moral conflict will find themselves with companions in every corner of the world. You see, it takes fortitude to stand up for what is morally right. And as we look at the world that we live in, we're going to have those types of opportunities to stand for what is morally right, to have integrity in those matters based on what the word of God says. And here in Joseph's case, it's about the only thing left that he, that he can do. I mean, he is opposed all of the way through what the council is doing to Jesus. And the morally right thing to do now is to take care of his body. So he is honoring the body of Jesus in the best way that he knows how. Now, many times, the bodies would be left on the cross to rot, to be eaten by birds, to be kept up as a warning to those who would oppose the Roman rule. Sometimes they would be taken down and buried. It is in John 19 where we see these instructions playing out as the Jewish leaders go to Pilate and ask that the, the legs be broken so that there wouldn't be bodies hanging over this preparation day, over this Sabbath, because it is closely connected to the Passover time. So that's how we get here to Joseph, who asks for the body of Jesus, and it is granted. Now he goes through some of these proper procedures. He wraps the body in a linen shroud. He lays him in a freshly cut tomb that nobody else has been in. This symbolizes purity, cleanliness, 
I think back to the colt that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on. It had to be a colt that nobody else had ridden on. You know, again, bringing out these virgin-type um, thinkings all surrounding Jesus. Again, purity, holiness, cleanliness. We also see how the women are following from the distance. They follow and they see where they lay the body so that they can go and prepare the spices to put on the body, understanding that they also had a duty. There was not much that they can do throughout the entire mob scene, throughout the crucifixion, so that they, they, know, they can do what they know how to do in terms of preparing these spices as best they could. Now, not much is mentioned with the other disciples through this time of crucifixion. Uh, Luke's going to talk about them coming up next week more so and a little bit this week. Luke also mentions, uh, or he makes a point even, that the people rested on the Sabbath, still adhering to the commandments of God. And then if you recall this past Easter, we talked about this day of silence, this, this Sabbath day, and what that could have looked like in this Jewish community. One that was filled with mourning, grieving, pain, and confusion. And as we pick up with the resurrection narrative here, the women return on that following day, very early in the morning. Now again, you want to try to put yourself in their shoes and you would think that they're still grieving, that they're still in mourning, that they're still down in terms of their attitude for what they had just witnessed resigning themselves to the fact that Jesus has died. I think that they come to the grave with no hope, with no faith, just confusion, suffering, no idea of what really is going on or where to go from here, no expectation as they're coming to the grave. I read a story this week, kind of hits home a little bit with our community, even though we've gotten some rain, thankfully, in the last couple weeks, but it was about a town suffering a serious drought. It was in the farm country, and the crops are being ruined. The local preacher decided to hold a prayer meeting to ask God to send rain, and he asked all those who believed in God's power to do so to join him at four o'clock. When the hour came, the church was almost filled. Now I want to pause in the middle of this story and let you think. What would your response be to this prayer meeting? Would you show up? When the preacher got up and looked around, he said, this meeting is called off. We don't have the faith to pray. I don't see a single umbrella. Humorous little chuckle, but it shows how seriously we expect from our prayers. Faith calls us to the promises of God, and we look to those promises with expectancy, with the expectancy that they deserve, because it comes from God. These women are not coming in that way today. They're coming to see a dead body. As they approach, they see and understand that something is not right. 
Now Luke, he doesn't go into a big explanation of this stone, so it does seem a little bit out of place for him. But this stone is rolled in front of the entrance um, to keep the disciples from taking the body of Jesus and then claiming that he was resurrected. You see, the Jewish leaders still remembered the teachings of Jesus. They remembered his claim. Now, even though they too would be grieving from the, the veil that is torn, they still had enough wherewithal to remember the influence that this man could still have, his words and what they mean, what it means to their position and to, to their power. So they order for this stone to be placed in front of the tomb. It's interesting that the Pharisees who did not have eyes to see or ears to hear throughout Jesus' ministry still recognized what he said about rising from the dead in three days while his disciples did not. They understood the threat, so to speak, of Jesus better than the truth of Jesus and what we have to hope for. As the women come early in the morning, they find this stone rolled away. Perhaps even more puzzling or troubling is that the body was missing. Now, you don't hear too much about this anymore, but a while back, you would have a series of grave robberies that would happen where people would go and they would try to dig up people to get the valuables that they were buried with, desecrating the site, desecrating the body itself. Here in our passage, Jesus is just gone. Now, it does seem difficult to separate ourselves from what we know, from our faith and what we understand. But putting yourself in these women's shoes, it would be difficult to understand what's going on in their hearts and minds. I mean, it's mixed with the grief that is going on, and then you have this added confusion that he is just gone. You know, the closest resemblance I can have is if you have a young child that's playing in a room and suddenly they just silently disappear. Your heart begins to race. You begin to panic. You have worry and anxiety setting in until you find that child. Luke describes their feeling as being perplexed in the ESV. It's a term that means to be uncertain, to be at a loss, to be anxious or in doubt. Strong feelings of confusion would be setting in for these women. But as they are facing these feelings, these thoughts, two men uh, who are angels appear. Now in scripture many times when angels appear, they are described as having dazzling clothes. So we can make the inference from that. Or we can just look down to verse 23 when it talks about the men on the road to Emmaus. And they describe these men as angels. Um, well, they're just... I'll start up in the second part of verse 22. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying earlier, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. So these angels come and um, greet these women, and you see the typical fear response. They, they bow their heads to the ground out of respect, out of authority for their power of these two men before them. And the angels ask a pertinent question and then teach the women again what they have already been taught. They ask, why are you looking for the living among the dead? 
a phrase, I think, that would have added more confusion. I mean, obviously, I'm in a cemetery, so I'm looking for somebody who is dead. But what they fail to see is that Jesus is not dead, but he is alive. A phrase, a statement that can be true for us today in the face of people claiming that Christianity or the church is dead. Neither can be dead because our Savior lives. And as puzzling as this question is, the angels quickly explain what they mean by saying he is not here, but he is risen. And they remind the women of the prophecies that Jesus gave. In Luke, they were in chapter 9, 22, chapter 9, 43, and 45, and chapter 18, 31 through 33. Prophecies that would say that he needed to be killed, um, but on the third day, he would rise. And you know, even Luke informs the reader that even after these prophecies, he says that the disciples did not understand. And the passage in Luke 18 says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is Jesus speaking. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Here, in our passage, the angels are explaining these things to the women so that they can understand and not be confused anymore. Still probably not knowing the significance or the deeper meaning of the resurrection and what that means for them, but at least they remember these teachings from Jesus that he said that this was going to happen, and it gives them a renewed sense of hope. It brings excitement to their minds, and they celebrate this news. This type of feeling when when you go into something expecting the worst, but then it turns out to be the opposite. It brings you this sense of relief, like, but you know, the resurrection is more than just a sigh of relief. Like, okay, that's good. It is greater than anything that the disciples could understand or fathom. It brings wonder. It brings amazement and awe. It brings mystery to try to understand this. You know, these women, they go back and they tell the other 11 about this. But look at verse 11 with me. This is how the men respond. I'm not saying that this is still consistent today, but but these words seem to them an idle tale. And they did not believe. They viewed what the women were saying as idle tales, something that is unbelievable. And in some ways, I think that we have all been there. And maybe we are still there in some areas of our faith, some areas of our theology where we just don't understand, where we have struggles believing what the Word of God says. You know, words cannot grasp the awesome mystery. Of the resurrection. Many times people, maybe ourselves, approach Christianity, approach the Bible with skepticism, where maybe they need experience, or we need to experience the words for ourselves. I think that is what is applying here with the disciples. They couldn't believe that Jesus was alive, even though he predicted it, even though he said it. How many other passages are there in scripture that maybe we question is this really true even though 
it's the words of Jesus, even though it's the words of God. Maybe sometimes we let our experiences dictate truth and reality. We try to rationalize and justify our experiences so much so that those trump the word of God. Where we too will not believe Jesus' actual words. You know, sometimes that's for a season. Sometimes it's through different hardships or trials where we doubt parts of the word of God because of what we're feeling or what our emotions are or what we might be facing and going through. I can't tell you how many times where I know the truth, but I just don't believe the truth in that moment. I know you're good, Lord, but you don't feel good right now. I know you comfort, Lord, but man, I just, I'm not feeling comforted right now. I know you heal, Lord, can heal, may heal, but I just don't see that healing. We want our experiences, we want our own ideas of truth to be the truth rather than what God says is true. Oftentimes for myself, I fall back on the prayer of, that's found, oh goodness, I think it's in Mark, but where the, the man of the healed boy says, I believe, help my unbelief. We wrestle through these things all the time in life. We have to be open and honest with that. This fall, I think we might step into some of those things when we talk about the spiritual gifts. You know, we want to rely as closely as we can on what the Word of God says rather than what my eyes see or what my mind makes up and is telling me is real. We have to remember these disciples saw Jesus die. That is the reality. That is their experience. The resurrection seems so fanciful a dead person for three days rising, a body that is tore apart, that's whipped, that's flogged, that's decomposing, rising from the dead. Unbelievable. But you think back to Lazarus, who was in the grave for four days. And Jesus comes and he says, open up the tomb. And what's the people's response? Lord, he stinks. The disciples watched him raise Lazarus from the dead. The disciples watched him raise the widow's son who was being carried to the tomb. Those disciples watched him, or at least were there, for Jairus' daughter as well. The book of Matthew records how the tombs were opened after Jesus' death and people began to walk around. So it's not like this idea of resurrection would be foreign to them. They simply did not believe. The women had this verified by two angels, two witnesses to uh, verify the truth, to justify the truth, and the women believed. The others did not believe at this time. Peter, who is curious, runs to the tomb. Looking in, uh, he is in amazement as he peers in, seeing what the women described, and he walks away marveling at what, what has happened. He's in awe, he's in wonder at God as he's beginning to put things together. Every time that I read about how people marvel, how people wonder, 
it just brings that question back into my mind. What is the last thing that I marveled at that God has revealed to me? What is the last thing that I have been in awe of when I think of God? Am I praising him for his timing, for his goodness, for his love? Do I have eyes to see and ears to hear? Charles Spurgeon says this about the resurrection. He says, the resurrection of our divine Lord from the dead is the cornerstone of Christian doctrine. Perhaps I might more accurately call it the keystone of the arch of Christianity. For if that fact could be disproved, the whole fabric of the gospel would fall to the ground. The resurrection, which has such a strong importance to our faith, was scarcely believed at first. Now what we will see coming up in the next passages is how Jesus confirms his resurrection to his disciples. But even as the stories continue, there's still doubt that is among the believers, most famously with Thomas. But as they experienced the resurrected one themselves, they believed. And I think therein lies the hardship of preaching the gospel message. As the women relayed here to us today, they gave or they told the truth of what was told to them. They talked about what happened to them. They used their testimonies. They used the words of God and the disciples, those who followed Jesus, did not believe them. At times, we can simply say something along these lines, that as people are fallen in nature, we have all sinned, we have all fallen short of the glory of God, we have all broken the laws of God, and in, in so doing, we are deserving of death, a death that would be both physical and eternally separate us from the Father, our Creator, and God. But in God's love for us, he sent his son, Jesus, so that when Jesus died, he was paying for our sins as an innocent sacrifice. Since death is a consequence of sin and Jesus was innocent, death could not hold him. And he was raised from the dead on the third day. And he then gives life to those who believe that he has paid for their sins. He's currently sitting at the right hand of the Father and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And we look expectantly upon that. It's something that seems fanciful. It seems like a lot of big words. It seems hard to believe until the Lord shows you the resurrected one. Where you see, where you experience his holiness and you compare the ugliness of your sin to that, the reprehensible nature compared to his glory. Until a person can see their need for a savior, that there's something wrong with them, they're gonna find it difficult to understand the hope and the answer that we as Christians have in Jesus. A simple walkthrough of the gospel sounds normal to those who believe, but it sounds like folly and idle tales to those who are perishing. So as believers who go and share our faith, we want to be understanding of who we're talking to. I've found, as I've shared my faith, I found it very effective to share the gospel truths along with how Jesus has shown up in my life in terms of my testimony. 
I bathe those conversations in prayer that the Spirit would move in that person's life to help that person who is blind see the resurrected one. Trying to love that person the same way that Jesus has loved me. Now we cannot be shaken by the things that we're gonna face in this world. We need to stand with conviction for the things that are morally right. We have to have integrity as people, upholding the truths of God and his love, his love that has gone to the cross for us. We hold on to the resurrected one so desperately and we celebrate him each and every day of our lives. We recognize the importance to rely on that truth and to relay that truth in ways that will reach the hearts and minds of those around us. Some of them, for a period of time, will think that it's all an idle story. Others may become curious and leave that conversation with wonder and awe. No matter their reaction or their experience, the constant is God. He is true. And his love for them and for us as well. God, who sent his son to die in our place in order to pay for our sins, he raised his son from the grave because he was innocent and death could not hold him. The victory over death and sin is what we place our confident hope in and our faith rests solely on him. We expect one day to be reunited with him in, in his kingdom and we celebrate those truths any day that ends in a why. Let's pray. Father, we, we magnify and lift your name above all other names today. We are so grateful for the freedom that we have from the control of sin in our lives. A freedom that was bought with the precious blood of your son. Lord, as we think about the freedoms that we have as a nation, Lord, we are so thankful that you have given us this place as our home. We are so thankful that we have the opportunities to meet as a church body. We pray for our brothers and sisters across the world who do not have those same freedoms, who are suffering for your name's sake. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen them today, that you would be their comforter, that you would be their healer, that you would be their beacon of hope that they can keep their eyes on. Lord, that in the face of persecution, you would strengthen them to continue to stand for the morally right thing to do. Help us as, as individuals and as, and as a, a community of believers to do those same things. Lord, we lift up those that are hurting today. We praise you. Lord, for the healings that have taken place. And Father, we ask that you be close to the brokenhearted. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. For our last song. <clears throat>
time to be holy. Speak oft with thy Lord. Abide in him always and feed on his word. Make friends of God's children. Help those who are weak. Blessing to see. Take time to behold. 